Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Well, we are slowly but surely working our way through 1 Peter chapter 1. We covered verse 13 last week. One verse. <laughs> we'll see how we do today. The goal is 13, 14, 15, five verses. That would be a major accomplishment if we can pull it off. So, we left off in verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We talked about the fact that this girding up of the loins of your mind, it comes from that ancient uh, practice when they used to wear the long robes when they needed to run, like Elijah racing King Ahab down Mount Carmel or going into battle or what have you. They would pull up the robe and tie it around the waist because they couldn't really run with their robes hanging down to the ground. The girding up of the loins. But it means to prepare your minds for action. To be disciplined in your thinking. And so we talked about guarding your heart and your mind. Being disciplined in your thinking. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And so forth. It's The battle is won or lost in the heart and in the mind, as we talked about last week. Prepare your minds for action. Be sober, which means to be self-controlled, to be disciplined. We're not to be controlled by the flesh, by the things of this world, but by the Holy Spirit. To be self-controlled really means we are controlled by the Spirit of God. We voluntarily, knowingly, willingly yield our will over to the Spirit of God. That's how we truly become self-controlled. And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you. Rest your hope fully. We talked about this. Jesus is our only true hope. And so God is calling upon us to rest our hope fully upon His grace. Really, that, His grace is our only hope. His unmerited favor. Getting what we don't deserve. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve resurrection or eternal life. We don't deserve forgiveness. But He graciously imparts these things to us as we put our faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And the interesting comment, the grace that is to be brought to you, I, you say, I thought we'd already received the grace. We have, but it's talking about at the revelation of Jesus Christ, the full revelation and understanding of Jesus and God's grace will not be revealed until we see Him face to face. Paul says, now we see through a mirror darkly or dimly, but then when He returns... Face to face, that's when we will have the full knowledge and understanding and revelation of God's grace. And that's why he's saying in the meantime, we've got to guard our hearts and minds, prepare our heart and minds for action, be sober, and rest our hope fully upon that grace that is to be brought to us. He's already purchased our salvation, but the fullness of it, including the resurrection of our physical bodies, we will experience it when we see Him face to face. And so that's where we left off. Let's pray. Father, we lift up this time in Your Word today. We pray that we can make good progress and cover these verses today and move forward in our study of this wonderful book of 1 Peter. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, prepare your minds for action. Be sober. Rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, as obedient children.
not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. So but now Peter's telling us how to do this, how to prepare our minds for action, how to be sober, how to rest our hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to us as obedient children. When we're born again, and Jesus is the one who coined that term, not Jimmy Carter, by the way. That's uh, when it first seemed to come into popular usage was back when Jimmy Carter was running for president and talking about being a born-again Christian, and so a lot of people voted for him because of that. I won't comment further on that, but... (laughs) At any rate, when we're born again, God truly becomes our Father, and we become His children. Now, some people have this idea that anyone who's a human being, all members of the human race, are God's children. Now, on the other hand, a very popular secular belief and philosophy is we're no different from the animals. So which is it? Are we all God's children? Or are we all just a bunch of animals? But the truth of the matter is we are not born into this world as children of God. We are born into this world in sin and the Bible clearly teaches that as a result of that we're born into this world I know this is a little uncomfortable for us, children of the devil. He told the Pharisees, Jesus told these very religious men. So let's make something clear. Religion does not put you in right standing with God. Did you know that? Oh my goodness, you're kidding me. No, religion doesn't put you into right standing with God. Relationship does. A relationship with the creator of all things through his son, Jesus Christ. When we are born again, as Jesus said we must be, if we are to see or to enter the kingdom of God, then God truly becomes our Father and we become His children. And Peter here is referencing our need to be obedient children. John 1.12 As many as received Him, to them gave He the right. This is Jesus now, the light. John's talking about him coming into the world. But men loved darkness rather than the light. But he tells us in verse 12, as many as received him, Jesus Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Did you know that when you're born into this world as a sinner, prior to actually being born again, prior to acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the Redeemer, the Savior of the world, that he died on the cross for your sins, that his, by his blood... We are washed, we are cleansed. Prior to that, you have no right to call yourself a child of God. Did you know that? He gives you the right when you receive Him, when you acknowledge Him. To as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in His name, His name is Yeshua. It means God is our salvation. It means you believe Jesus is God and you believe He's the Savior. Obedient children. There's an old TV program that a lot of you probably don't ever, haven't even ever heard of or watched, but it's called Father Knows Best. And Father later on became a doctor known as Marcus Welby. So, Robert Young. Father Knows Best. Obedient children. Peter is saying that an obedient child of God will do the things spoken of in verse 13. 
you will gird up your minds for action. You will be sober. You will be self-controlled. You will be yielded over to the Holy Spirit. You will rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is what an obedient child will do. An obedient child of God. Matthew seven nineteen through 21 Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruit you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. The obedient child that Peter is speaking of here. The one who obeys God, does his will. Now again, we're going we're gonna to fall short because we are still sinners saved by grace. We've not yet been perfected. We will be when that which is perfect comes. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Jesus is the one who is perfect. He has not returned yet. We have not entered into our full perfection, so we still fall short. That's why we have to rest our hope fully on the grace of God. But we, as children of God, should be striving, working, doing all that we can to be obedient to our Father, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. What does it mean to conform? It means to comply with or yield to, to live or act according to, as to conform to the fashion or to custom, to comply with, to obey, as to conform to the laws of the state. And of course, Romans 12, 2 do not be conformed to this world. Don't comply to this world. Don't yield to it. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Not conforming yourselves. And yet, sadly, we see that with many people who identify as believers, many churches, thinking that the way... It's, again, it, it's, there's a direct correlation. It's all the same spirit. It's the prince of this world. It's demonic. It's satanic. The belief that if we blame ourselves for being attacked by terrorists, they will stop attacking us. Okay? And in the church, if we accept people's sinful activities and don't speak out against them, then they will like us and want to come to our church. They'll want to be Christians if we compromise. Do not be conformed. Romans 12, 2. Do not live according to the style or manner of this present age. And yet we see that happening so much. I don't believe we have to be like the world to win the world. Because if we're like the world, what is there about us that would cause them to want to have what we have? If we're the same as them, well, I don't need to be a Christian. You're no different than I am. You sleep with your girlfriend or boyfriend too. You listen to the same music I do. I could go on and on, but if I go much further, I will start offending the people. When God knows I don't want to do that. Okay. Do not be conformed to the former lusts, the desires of the flesh, which you pursued as a non-believer. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 in the International Standard Version. 
You know that wicked people will not inherit the kingdom of God, don't you? Stop deceiving yourselves. Sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexuals, thieves, greedy people, drunks, slanderers, and robbers will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is what some of you were. Past tense. But you were washed. You were sanctified, set apart, justified, just as if I'd never sinned. In the name of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, and by the Spirit of our God. Past tense. Obedient children. Not conforming. Not conforming yourselves to the former lusts. And then, again, again, we use different terms for what it means to become a Christian, to be born again, to be converted, transformed. But if there's no change, then there's no conversion, there's no transformation. Charles Ryrie, one of my favorite commentators, says people whose lifestyles exhibit wickedness. So whenever we talk about these things, we're talking about lifestyle. Sometimes people stumble. Again, we are to put our hope fully in the grace of God because we know we will make mistakes. We will fall short, hopefully less and less as we grow in Christ. But Ryrie says people whose lifestyles exhibit wickedness. Lifestyle. Your lifestyle is how you live. So we're not talking about an occasional aberration, occasional stumbling or falling. We're talking about a willful, deliberate choice to live a certain way. People whose lifestyles exhibit wickedness, not fruit, show, this is Ryrie's viewpoint, they are unsaved and will therefore not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, next Peter says, he says, don't conform to these lusts, the former lusts, as in your ignorance. You see, the non-believer sins out of ignorance. But the believer who willingly, knowingly sins is held to a much higher standard. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. We seem to cover this passage a lot because it's such a prime example of what we're talking about. Paul says, I wrote to you in my epistle, my letter, not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. Because they're everywhere, right? And if we totally shun them, ignore them, remove ourselves from them, and again, I'm not being critical here, but an example of that might be like the Amish or some of these groups that really isolate their, themselves from society. I mean, I understand why they do it, but really, how can we reach the lost if we shun them and remove ourselves from them? And Paul says, that's not what I'm talking about. He says, I'm not telling you to stay away from sexually immoral people of the world or the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Verse 11, Now I have written to you 
not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Wow. That's strong, isn't it? And I would say most people would probably object to that, which is sad because how do we object to the truth of God's word? Because so many people today are driven by feelings and emotions. And I can remember, it's been years and years ago now, but we had a situation coming up in the church where there was some divisiveness and stuff going on. And I sat down with someone and I showed them in the scriptures how we're supposed to deal with this. And they said, yeah, I understand that, but I just don't feel right about it. I can't do it. And so further damage was done. Because people are not willing to put aside their feelings and their emotions. I'm not saying be mean, cruel, or harsh, but be firm. Paul says, it's the people who call themselves believers. Anyone named a brother. Now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who does these things. He says, for what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? That's God's business. Judging the world, condemning the world of its wickedness, its sinfulness. He says, do you not judge those who are inside? Question mark. Well, no, we don't do that here. We're not judgmental. We're loving. Which we should be loving. And we have to be careful because Jesus said, before you try to remove the speck or the splinter from your brother's eye, take the log out of your own eye first. But he did not say, oh, don't ever remove the speck from your brother's eye. Just leave it there. He'll be able to see well enough. Did he say that? He said, before you remove it, take the log out of your own. He didn't say, don't remove it. Right? Paul in Galatians says that when someone, a brother or sister, is caught up in a sin, we are to restore them gently. But we are to restore them. We're not to simply say, well, oh well, no big deal. Saved by grace. Once saved, always saved. They'll be fine. It's not what the Bible teaches. He says, 13 of 1 Corinthians 5, Those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. He's speaking of the one within the church that's living an unholy, ungodly lifestyle. And the purpose is not to shun them. It's to bring them to repentance. There again, the deception. The way we help someone is by coddling them. The way we help them is by accepting them just as they are. Now, yes, Jesus says, come as you are, but then I'm going to change you. I'm going to transform you. You're going to be born again. You're going to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and you're no longer going to be conformed to this world. But once you come and that process takes place, then there's the expectation that you're no longer going to conform to your former lusts, you see? So the goal, and again, because there's so little of this really happening in the church today, so little cooperation, so little obedience to the Word of God, that's why we see all these things growing exponentially, more and more sin in the church, because nobody's willing to deal with it. And the thing is, sin is a disease. It is a sickness, and if you don't take care of it, it will kill you. So if you love someone, what are you going to do? You're going to help them get better, are you not? 
1 John 3, beginning in verse 6. Whoever abides in Him does not sin. Whoever sins, I love it, John always does this. Whoever sins has neither seen Him nor known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness. And we just talked about that lifestyle of wickedness. He who practices righteousness. How do you get better at being righteous? You practice. (laughs) He who practices righteousness is righteous. Makes sense. The more you practice something, the better you get. Just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. And he cannot sin. There are some who literally believe that when someone's born again by the Spirit of God that their DNA is altered. I don't know. That's, that's a deep one. That's a deep one. But it almost hints of it here because seed in the Bible actually is connected to now we know this in modern times it actually is connected to our DNA our genetic encoding. So perhaps this is true. I know that if not now one day when we're transformed fully, when we're resurrected from the dead, when we are perfected, when we know Him even as we are known, then we absolutely will have His DNA. I guarantee you. He cannot sin because He's been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness. Now sometimes when you're practicing, you miss the mark, right? you go to batting practice, do you hit a home run every time? Do you even hit the ball every time? Sometimes you strike out. But as you practice, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. So I guess the question would be, what are you practicing? Are you practicing being a better alcoholic? Are you practicing being a better drug addict? Are you practicing being more promiscuous? Or are you practicing becoming more and more righteous? Again, sometimes people miss practice. Right? My grandson was in track here this spring and he missed some practices without telling anyone. Sometimes we miss practices. But the point is, what are you practicing? Righteousness or wickedness? If you're practicing wickedness, then I can't say that you would come under the category of an obedient child of God, right? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Ouch. Ouch. And that's another big thing. John was known as the apostle of love. And he just said it. If you don't love your brother, you're not of God. Wow. Wow. Ouch, right? We need to work on that. Peter said, above all, love one another fervently, for love covers over a multitude of sins. Why is there so much conflict in the church? And I'm just saying the church in general, not this church necessarily. As far as I can tell, now I don't always know what's going on behind the scenes. Things are pretty peaceful around here, pretty loving. We often hear that comment that people here are very loving. It's probably one of the highest compliments that can be paid to a church. But why is there so much conflict between believers and churches? 
because love covers over a multitude of sins. Where there is conflict, there's a lack of love. There's a lack of forgiveness. There's a lack of humility. First John 1 John 1.9, this is the part where I was getting to where I said I love how John deals with these things because he says in the beginning of 1 John chapter 1, these things we write unto you that you might not sin. But then he goes on and says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when you read John's writings, you find this duality where on the one hand he's saying, Christians aren't supposed to sin. I'm writing these things so that you won't sin. However, if you do sin, so basically he's acknowledging there's the the ideal and there's the real. The ideal, none of us would ever sin at any time. We would all be perfect. But again, that won't happen until we are raised from the dead, resurrected, we receive our glorified, immortal, eternal imperishable, incorruptible, perfect bodies, and that includes all of us, including our mind, heart, soul, mind, and strength. But in the meantime, we should be striving for the ideal and yet admitting, acknowledging we're not there yet. Therefore, we must rely wholly and completely upon that grace of God. Where people often tend to stumble and fall, they're not relying wholly upon that grace. They're operating in a works mentality, thinking that in order to go to heaven, they must perform good works to earn their salvation. No, we don't perform good works to earn our salvation. We perform our good works because Christ has earned our salvation. You see? He paid for it. He paid for it with His blood. And so we do good works because we love Him. We want to obey Him. Not because we're trying to earn our salvation, but when people get locked into that mentality, it may not even be a conscious thing. A person might not say, well, yeah, I'm trying to earn my way into heaven. But underneath it, there is this subconscious level at which they've bought into this idea, if I'm not good enough, I might not get to go. The only problem with that is, and I've shared this with you before as well, what I've observed from some of the great men and women of God down through the centuries, and I'm now experiencing it myself in my later years, is the longer you walk with God, the more you are aware of your sinfulness. And so you become more and more broken. I must decrease and He must increase. When I was a young man, a young believer, you know, I I accepted Christ. I got baptized. I started getting involved in ministry and it was all good. Now I ask forgiveness for my sins every day. Not because I think I'm going to lose my salvation or I need to get saved all over again. I'm just more and more aware of how rotten I am. And therefore more aware of how incredible God's grace and love and mercy and forgiveness really is. See, unless you're fully aware of how rotten you are, 
that you're a vile, wretched sinner, how can you fully understand or appreciate the love and the grace and the mercy of God? You can't. If you, to any degree at all, think somehow you were worthy of what Christ did for you on the cross, you've got a problem. Because you're not. I'm not. None of us are. All right. So in the hopes of actually getting through this today, let's move on. Verse 15. But as he who called you is holy. This but comes on the end of this. Don't be conformed any longer to the lusts, your previous lusts, you know, in your ignorance. Do not be conformed to the former lusts. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. You know, Peter didn't write a lot of New Testament books, but pretty much every verse in his writings just nails you to the wall. <laughs> it's because it's the Holy Spirit. To be holy means to be set apart from sin and to God. And it's motivated by God's perfect holiness. This is the standard. This is the goal. This is the plumb line. Again, however, sometimes we miss the mark. 1 John 2, 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, <laughs> we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So he's saying, here's the ideal. I'm writing these things to you so that you won't sin, but I know you will. The good news, we have an advocate. We have a defense attorney. That's what it means. It's a legal term. Jesus Christ. Thank God. We have an advocate, an intercessor. The devil is the accuser of the brethren. He's going to be going before the Father saying, Well, did you see what Gary just did? Guy is hopeless. You really need to get rid of him. You need to let him come down here with me. And Jesus is no father, he's mine. He's been washed in my blood. He's been forgiven. He's been cleansed. He's not perfect yet, but he will be. You also be holy in all your conduct. Big challenge. I don't know about you, but I have failed miserably in this department. But I'm going to keep trying. Not just on Sunday mornings. That's not too hard to do, although some people even struggle with that. Or Thursday nights, if you happen to come for midweek study. Not just at women's Bible study, men's prayer, or koinonia group, but at home, at work, in public. Be holy in all your conduct. Anybody can put their best foot forward at a certain time at a certain place, right? I don't know about you guys, but I'm getting convicted by the second here. As obedient children of God, we are to behave properly. Obedient children behave, don't they? Oh my, what obedient children you have. They're so wonderful. They're just, they behave so nicely. When's the last time you heard anybody say that about God's kids? Oh my goodness. As obedient children of God, we are to behave properly in every arena of life. And I have in all capital, bold, big, ouch. Ouch. But you know what? God's owies are good. Those whom the Lord loves, He chastens. He chastens us through His Word. It's not always 
you know, uh, something bad happens to us because God is chastening us. If we let him, he will chasten us through his word. By the power of his Holy Spirit, as we read the word, as we study the word together, he chastens us. I'm getting chastened right now. What about you? It doesn't always mean something bad's going to happen to us. God's going to spank us. He chastens us through his word, the power of his word. Verse 16. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus eleven forty four. For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. If we're going to be his kids, we are to be and to act like our dad. Now we know here in this world that's not always a good thing. A lot of kids act like their dads and their dads weren't too great. But we have a dad who is awesome, amazing, perfect. And we are to emulate him and be like him. Verse 17, if you call on the father who without partiality judges according to each one's work. Peter just wants to get that in there. By the way, there will be a test. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. If you call on the Father, our only hope in this life for being holy as He is holy is to call on Him often. If we're struggling in this area of holiness, we're probably not calling on Him often enough. If you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each man's work. What does that tell us? Now, from our human perspective, we think that there are people with special privileges. And we've seen some of these people who think they have special privileges and they have fallen mightily. But God has no favorites. You know, Billy and Franklin Graham, wonderful men of God. No doubt God loves them and He's used them mightily. James Dobson, Chuck Smith, our beloved founder. But every believer's works will be judged equally and fairly. Notice I said, Peter said, works, not sins. Our sins have already been judged on the cross of Calvary. Christ died in our place. However, our works will be judged. 1 Corinthians three eleven through 15. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The wise man who builds his house upon the rock. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation, that's the starting point. If Jesus is not the foundation of your life, it doesn't matter how tall the building is, how magnificent it may appear to be. If Jesus isn't the foundation of your life, it will come crashing down. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw. Notice the first three. Strong, lasting, gold, silver, precious stones, valuable materials. Wood, hay, and straw are all highly flammable. Each one's work will become clear for the day, big D. The day of the Lord will declare it because it will be revealed by Fire. Now, if you've got some gold, silver, and precious stones in there, no worries. But if you've been building with wood, hay, and straw, and then the fire revealing comes, you're in a bit of trouble, aren't you? 
The fire will test each man's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. I don't know about you, but I don't want to get into heaven with uh, black scorch marks on the back of my robe. You might think, I don't care about rewards. That salvation is good enough for me. But let me tell you, if God thought it was important enough to put it in His Word, we should consider it. That apparently there's something important in the eternal kingdom of God about rewards or lack thereof. Right? We ought not to take it lightly. You might say, well, as long as I get in, I'll be fine. And that's technically true. But we should take it seriously because God takes it seriously. So he says, If you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Conduct yourselves. Conduct. In this passage, Peter is dealing with Christian conduct. Being holy in all your conduct. Your behavior. It's an old rock song. Now, Junior, behave yourself. Throughout the time of your stay here. I love this. I love Peter. Peter likens our time here on earth to a temporary stay. Throughout the time of your stay here. We are strangers. We are foreigners. Our home is in heaven. Uh, how long you will, will you be staying with us, sir? Only as long as God wants me to be. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Hebrews eleven thirteen, Faith Hall of Fame. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah. These all died in faith. We read this verse, I believe, a couple weeks ago. Not having received the promises. What a bunch of dummies. Lived their whole lives for God, never saw the promises. No, they, they knew what they were doing. But having seen them afar off, they had a view of eternity. They saw the big picture. Were assured of them. Embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Again, that's another big problem for so many people who identify themselves as believers, would like to be believers, but they're still friends with this world. They don't see themselves as strangers and pilgrims on the earth, they see this as their home. I saw some movie the other night where the person was saying, talking about heaven, and then I finally came to realize, this is heaven. How disappointing. How very disappointing, right? <laughs> no, this is not heaven, and it's not hell. But the decisions that you and I make here on this earth will determine where we spend eternity, whether in heaven or in hell. Throughout the time of your stay here, throughout the time, from the moment we embrace Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, God expects us to conduct ourselves in a holy manner in keeping with our status as children of God. 
And if we don't, like any good father, God will do what he has to do. Hebrews 12.6 For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. 1 Corinthians 11.28 But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread, drink of the cup. Paul giving directives here for communion. The Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, that would be without examining yourself, asking the Holy Spirit, please show me if there's any unconfessed sin in my life. I, I want to come before you in a worthy manner. I know that I can be washed in the blood of Christ, but I do need to confess my sins before you and repent. He who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Now, again, the, the faith teachers will hammer you and hit you hard with this. Anytime you get sick, you must be in sin. No, uh, we do live in a world filled with germs and diseases and viruses and every evil thing. It's a cursed world. Our bodies are cursed. But it is true that sometimes sickness is related to our spiritual condition. Paul says you've not really examined yourself, practiced confession, repentance, come before the Lord's table in a worthy manner. Some are weak, some are sick, many have asleep, many have died. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So sometimes, when we are not acting as obedient children, like Peter's talking about here, it comes down to God judging us, dealing with us, so that we won't be condemned with the world. And that's why we should embrace God's chastening in our lives. It's not always fun. It's not comfortable. I'll never forget the time my son, Taylor who now goes by his middle name, Boyd, actually thanked me for spanking him. He was the, the most compliant of all the kids. He, he, he was the kind that all you had to do is look at him sternly and he'd break out crying. But one time I had to give him a swat. And afterwards he said, Thanks, Dad. I mean, how, does that really happen? <laughs> it really happened! I'll never... I'll never forget it. Would that more of us were like that. Father, thank you. I needed that. Lord God, I was headed down the wrong direction and you straightened me out. Praise your name. Hallelujah. In fear, throughout your time here, conduct yourselves throughout your time of your stay here in fear. Not fear of what my, God might do to us, not like he's some big ogre out there waiting to squash us like a bug, as some people seem to think, but a sense of awe, fear, respect, because we now know who he is and how awesome he is. It's like that song, R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Find out what it means to me. Aretha Franklin. It's a healthy fear. Acknowledging his awesomeness, his power. He's the creator of all things, the God of the universe. And I think we could add to this 
of fear of failing him. I think that's healthy. Which we all do from time to time. We do fail him from time to time. But we should be more concerned about that than fulfilling these lusts of the flesh that Peter's talked about. Oh, it's okay. God will forgive me. I really want to do this. I know it's going to feel good. It's going to make me feel good. And God will forgive me. Now that's not fear. That's not the fear of the Lord. That's presuming upon the grace of God. And that probably will get you a spanking. Proverbs 1.7 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Psalm 34.7 The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him. Have you ever prayed for God to send his angels to watch over you, protect you? Or have you prayed that for others? I do that for my family every night. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. If you want God's protection upon your life, you need to fear him. You need to respect him. You need to honor him. You need to obey him. And delivers them. The prophet Samuel sums it up very nicely and we'll read this verse in closing. 1 Samuel 12, 24. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart for consider what great things he has done for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage in 1 Peter. We thank you that we were able to get through it today. So much there for us to learn from and to grow from. Lord, help us not to just leave here and forget all this. Help us to take it to heart. Help us to uh, digest it, ingest it, digest it, and let it work its way into our hearts and minds. And let your word transform us by the renewing of our minds. And we pray, God, today, anyone who needs a touch from you, who needs prayer, who needs ministry, that they will not hesitate or hold back, that they would come today and receive prayer, and that you would touch them, Father, as only you can. Lord, we ask you to pour out your spirit here to impart faith to those who are lacking in faith and just do a mighty work in our midst in these closing moments. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.